1: Welcome to the Three Donation Podcast. I'm Justin Dunk, joined by John Hodge and JC Abbott. Today we're discussing the CFL's decision not to live stream its national combine.
0: The possibility of Brandon Zilstra returning to the CFL.
2: Mike O'Shea planning not to take his son in this year's CFL draft.
1: Chris Jones addressing Kevin Francis's request for his release from the Edmonton Elks
0: and a Canadian billionaire making an offer to purchase the Washington Commanders. But first, Simon Fraser University has eliminated its football program, bringing an end to a team that had existed since 1965. The school will honor athletic scholarships for the 2023-2024 academic year. The players wishing to continue their football careers will need to look elsewhere for playing opportunities. SFU moved to the NCAA Division II Lone Star Conference for this past season, but didn't have its membership renewed beyond 2023, a decision it called disappointing. What does this mean for Simon Fraser and Canadian post-secondary football as a whole?
2: It's utterly devastating for everyone involved in, in Simon Fraser football, the athletes, all the coaches, all the staff, all the alumni but it's also devastating for people in this province in British Columbia who are hoping to play football at the next level and and continue their athletic careers because they have one less place to do so. Uh, A place that provided opportunities for decades and fantastic opportunities at that. One of the best schools in the country historically in terms of producing CFL caliber talent. You look at the list of players that came through Simon Fraser, maybe not in recent years, but back in, in their golden era when they were playing in the NAIA, you've got guys like Louis Pasaglia, you know, Hall of Famers, Doug Brown. Like These are all players who came through Simon Fraser University And became dominant professional football players. And that legacy has continued. And with very little warning, this has gone up in smoke. Um, It's truly horrific that the school has made this decision. You could see some of the writing on the wall when they were booted out of the Lone Star Conference earlier this offseason. But I don't think anyone expected something like this to happen this fast because they had another year of play in that conference down in Texas. There were other avenues that they could pursue. The school has decided to be, in its mind, proactive and give people the opportunity to find a new home. But what they've really done is given a team full of football players No place to play without warning, right? There is another transfer window opening in May, so potentially some of these guys can find a new home before next season, but most teams have their roster spots almost entirely filled at this stage. There's not going to be very many opportunities, and so for some of these kids on that team, this will be the end of their football career because... SFU simply didn't want to play a last season in the Lone Star Conference and didn't want to explore all its options with U-sports. Now, I know there's going to be lots of discourse about that particular dynamic. Well, why doesn't SFU just play in U-sports against teams like UBC and Calgary and the University of Alberta like it used to do uh, for a brief period in the early 2000s? Well, the dynamic at play there is U Sports has a rule that you cannot be a single member, a single sport member in, in that conference, right? SFU plays all its other sports in NCAA Division II. They do not want that to change, and they weren't willing to sacrifice that in order to accommodate football moving over to uSports. Could that be negotiated? Could that be changed in the future? Was there wiggle room there? A lot of people seem to think so, that this could have been pushed and, and bargained for and potentially an exception made. But SFU didn't make this effort, and it is the student athletes who are suffering right now because of it.
1: Simon Fraser, President Joy Johnson and the rest of the decision makers in this process have given these student athletes an absolutely terrible decision at an awful time for them to try to advance their careers and potentially reach the pros or at least play out their university career. So I would like to hear what Joy Johnson would say to these student athletes, because these are truly student athletes, especially in Canada, as we know, compared to the schools in the States. And These students, yes, some of them are on scholarships, but are dedicated to these universities, largely go in debt. And guys, we're all somewhat aware of that from going to the various institutions that we went to, are dedicated to their schoolwork and are also supreme athletes as well. And you put them at such a disadvantage by making this decision in April. It makes no sense. And these people who are in the academia world like to puff out their chests about student athletes, but then they don't actually realize how impactful these student athletes can be in terms of getting their universities out there and ultimately making the universities more money. So I would like to hear from Joy Johnson and put her on the hot seat to understand how this decision was made and the timing of it, because lots of times around this country, As much as we like to be polite Canadians, and I understand it, but there needs to be difficult questions asked of people in power in our universities, but oftentimes they shy away from it and just put out a statement. And I hope that's not the case in this instance, but I fear because of what's happened in the past, that's what will go down. Now, as for the student athletes, you've already seen a number of them out on social media posting highlight films looking for their next potential opportunity to play. And I do think some of them will land in youth sports. Perhaps some of them land in the NCAA as well. But as JC alluded to, rosters are full. Spring camps are ongoing. So it's going to be an uphill battle for any of these student-athletes. So these student-athletes who have always put their – institution first, in terms of being a student, in terms of being an athlete, in terms of being held to that standard, have now been put way behind and ultimately disrespected from the institution that they held in such high regard. It is disgraceful from Simon Fraser University to make this decision at this time. If it was going to happen, it should have been done right after the season and the student-athletes should have been the first to know so they could go through the avenues of finding a different institution to go to.
0: Yeah, Three Down Nation has requested interview with Simon Fraser. That request was made on Tuesday. We've yet to hear back. And obviously, if that interview is granted, you'll be reading all about what the leadership at SFU has to say about this on our website we did also speak to U Sports, who confirmed that no formal request was made by SFU to join U Sports. And for the uninitiated, 1965, Simon Fraser joined the NAIA, that stands for National Association of Intercollegiate Athletics. That's essentially the NCAA in the United States, but a step down. They joined U Sports, which is, of course, the Canadian university ecosystem, in 2002, played there till 2009. And then in 2010, made the decision to get back to the NCAA as a Division II school in the great Northwest Atlantic Conference. They played there for 11 seasons, till 2021, moved to the Lone Star, and now they're just kind of a homeless, nomad team. And that is the primary reason they appear to have cited for this decision to fold the team. But to say that they have exhausted all avenues to try to keep this team going First of all, you you could have competed as an independent. You don't have to be in a conference. You also could have played an exhibition schedule, right? They played a shrumble this past season against UBC, which is a youth sports team. If you really wanted to do the best thing for the student-athletes, you could have played as an independent. You could have done some type of exhibition schedule. Is it as good as being in a conference? No. But it's better than simply folding the team. And to say that you've exhausted all avenues... And then not even apply to U Sports, not e- not even file to try to get into U Sports. To me, is ridiculous because we know that Simon Fraser has been in U Sports previously, albeit as right all of their teams, all of their varsity. I believe they have eighteen athletic varsity teams. They claim to have over three hundred student athletes. Still, they all moved to U Sports two thousand two. They moved down south in twenty ten, but. As Dunk mentioned, I believe, and this is speculation, but I can see a path to Simon Fraser being a U-sports football team and remain in Division II for everything else. So a very disappointing decision. We spoke to a number of the alumni of that school yesterday. We have an interview out with we did with Glenn Suter of TSN, who played at Simon Fraser before an 11-year career with the Saskatchewan Rough Riders. We spoke to Doug Brown as well, Canadian Football Hall of Famer, who spent three years in the NFL right after playing At at Simon Fraser and and, you know, it's it's a terribly disappointing decision. And something that Souter talked about, you can read the interview in full is he's worried that this could be a domino effect where other institutions can go, hey, football is a really expensive sport to play. Gotta, we have to shell out a ton of scholarships, you know, to feel the full team, the equipment, all that stuff. What if we just ask the program? Because after all, Simon Fraser did it. They, they opened up that door, right, for other institutions to walk through. So hopefully this is a rallying moment for Canadian football and for the people who care about our sport in this country who can get together. Put the egos aside. Get into a room and say, "How do we solve this? How do we fix this? And how do we stop this from being a slippery slope of other institutions going the same way as Simon Fraser? Because it's a lot easy. To, it's a lot easier to be the second one to do it than it is the first, as we know. So hopefully, that is not what occurs.
2: Yeah, you know, I I'm less concerned about a domino effect simply because. As much as we like to harp on the amateur football infrastructure in this in this country sometimes, there are very few places that are as utterly incompetent as SFU has been traditionally in their athletic department. And we've talked about President Joy Johnson, Athletic Director Teresa Hansen. This has not been a rip-roaring success for the last two decades, right? You're talking about a proud football team, a proud athletic program. That has struggled greatly, both in youth sports and since their move to the NCAA, that has not created a culture where winning is possible, where student athletes have not felt supported in any way. And it is manifesting itself in football more than any other sport. I think they, they have not managed to understand the unique requirements to have a successful football team. But if you look across the board at that athletic department right now, you know, there's problems in women's soccer. There's problems in swimming, you know, major controversies in both of those sports. And while I can't say I'm an expert in all 18 varsity sports at SFU, I don't think there is really any that has had tremendous success at the NCAA uh, division two level since they made that move for essentially financial motivations. Right. So I don't have a lot of faith in that group. I hope the powerful base of alumni, I mean, we've mentioned some of the big names, will take a stand here and say, hey, in, unless something changes here, unless we go through the motions and and make some effort to try and you know negotiate with you sports and, and find a path to success, you will not be seeing a single dollar of mine going forward in terms of donations to your school or to your athletic department, and I think they are well within their rights to make that stand.
1: JC, some might argue whether or not you're an expert in football, but I do think that there have been some people that have still fought through this mess at SFU in terms of Rice and John getting NFL looks. He's been in the NFL for a while, signed his contract just recently with the Calgary Stampeders. Lamar Durant is still in The CFL, Matthias Gosen, I hope I'm saying that right, was a high draft pick with the Winnipeg Blue Bombers where Hodge makes his home there in the Manitoba capital. And there have been a handful of others recently as well coming from that football program that battled through all of the difficulties and lack of support that JC talked about that still made it to the professional ranks. So credit to the coaching staffs that have been through there and the players recently that have not had that support but still been able to fight through enough to get looks in the pros.
2: And the last thing I'll say on this topic before we do move on, because I see the look from Hodge over there in the corner, just eyeballing me, is is there are still players on this team, right, that is now left without a home that will make an impact in the professional level. And the name that jumps out to me is, is defensive back Jarrell Cummings, who has been a fantastic player regardless of what conference they have, uh, Plagan, a three-year starter there at corner, a, a multi-time All-Star, a guy who was going to be, you know, certainly an intriguing prospect for the 2024 NFL, uh, CFL draft. He he now will need to find a home. I'm sure there are multiple teams bidding for his services because he will be an impact starter regardless of where he goes. But this is going to make his path to the pros significantly more difficult, and you just
1: you just hate to see it. Hodge, are we good to move on? Yes, sir. (laughs) The CFL decided not to live stream its combine in Edmonton, marking the first time in many years that there's been no broadcast of the event. The decision caused an outcry on social media. And Hodge, you spoke to a number of sources regarding the decision and why it was made. Tell us all about it.
0: Well, the first thing I want to say is the combine was awesome this year. I thought it was a great event. I think it's probably the best combine I've been to. The only thing that I would say that maybe elevated previous combines like the 2017 combine in Regina, for instance, was the fact that there was all the fan stuff accompanying it as part of CFL week. So there was a lot more members of the public and a lot more kind of hype around the event. Just just given that there was an actual crowd there, actual fans who were attending and, and hanging out, and wanted to see what these guys did live. But the, the combine I thought was great. The facilities were great. The bus, the hotel, everything around the combine was all decked out in the CFL Combine's new logo, which I think is really slick. The colors that I think are really awesome. The players raved about the playing surface. They raved about the hoodies that they got. They they were treated like true <laughs> professionals. It's
1: and, all about the hoodies.
0: Uh, and, hey, never underestimate the value of a good hoodie.
1: For um, th- bunny hugs.
0: Or, or bunny hug for our Saskatchewan listeners. But the food was good. Like like everything surrounding the combine was great. But I feel like in the minds of most Canadian football fans, it didn't even happen because they did not see a lick of it. Right. And that's something that I think is a problem. And the CFL talked about a few things. They talked about the cost of doing the live stream being a little bit prohibitive. They talked about the logistics being a problem. After all, most of their employees are based in southern Ontario. The event was in Edmonton. The thing I don't understand, though, is they were able to do a really nice live stream of the event in Regina. Surely I would think that a Regina live stream would be harder logistically than an Edmonton live stream, just given the, the size and scope of the city and the resources that are locally available. But at the end of the day, this to me was was a mistake. Randy Ambrosi talked a lot at Grey Cup about how the event of uh, CFL Week shouldn't come back because the CFL is pivoting to a digital content strategy, right? They don't want to do the old-fashioned boots on the ground, get fans out, and have a few beers event. They want to be in people's homes on television with digital streaming and content that can grab them. Well, the the major thing they were doing is not a thing anymore, right? That They, they had the live stream that would give people their kind of first glance and first glimpse of these amateur athletes who are going to be pros in the CFL next year, some of whom are going to be first round picks and, and become starters for CFL teams. And and they've missed that boat. They've missed that opportunity. So I hope that this is a one year diversion from the event. I know that the live streams never got crazy audiences. It wasn't like there were millions of people tuning in on YouTube, but the the event from last year, I've gone back and looked at the clips. They all have between 10 and 20,000 views and I think that those clips have value as they age, right? Because after draft day, there's going to be people who go, oh, wait, what about that guy? I'm going to watch, okay, our team drafted an O-lineman. Well, I'm going to watch him in the one-on-ones. Or, oh, our, our, my favorite team drafted a receiver in round one. I want to go back to the combine and watch how they did as, as part of the one-on-ones. So to me, this was a mistake all in all. And, and to be honest, I think the reasons the CFL gave as excuses... Are a little bit lame.
2: Yeah, I, I think one of the biggest things we maybe haven't touched on yet as to why they didn't have a live stream is simply the logistics in the venue itself, which I think are worth stating. And the The spot at the at the Commonwealth Fieldhouse at the Recreation Center was great in terms of the surface, but it was a little bit tight, right? It's not a full field. It was difficult just to get the amount of players that were in attendance onto the field. There was a couple instances where people ran into walls and things like that. There wasn't a lot of space to set up a broadcast area and have someone standing there all day long, giving you play-by-play of the event or very much space to have cameras roaming around. And I think that probably played a significant role into this decision uh, not to have a live stream because they didn't feel they could have the quality of live stream that maybe we have been accustomed to, or that they expect. Now, that doesn't let them off the hook at all because they chose this venue, right? They made these decisions, and they should have taken that into account. And at the bare minimum, this event was, in fact, filmed, right? It has coaches film, shot of it, that that, that teams can go back and evaluate and look at the prospects. We saw cameras all, all around us, it may not have been as flashy as maybe it was the year before in Toronto, but certainly if you wanted to, you could have done a bare minimum live stream with that type of footage. It might not have been as pretty or as impressive, but it's better than nothing. And and you touched on it, Hodge, but Randy Ambrosi had said, right, our game is not our content. Content is our content. Well, you can't just let content go away. So I think it was an egregious failure by the CFL not to have any sort of coverage and kudos to their communication staff and and everyone who was in attendance for making our job as reporters to be able to cover the event extremely easy this year. I, I really want to give everyone at the CFL a pat on the back for that, but I wish everyone could have experienced the event like we did because it was truly a great event.
1: First of all, shout out to Lucas Barrett, Olivier Poulain, Herb Fung, and our boy G, who did make it very easy for us. We're very accommodating. We had some great setups for all of the video shoots that we did. You can check it out at the 3 Down Nation YouTube page. And I will say, fellas, you two clean up nice in your suit jacket. So shout out to Barrett, Poulain, Fung, G and the CFL communications team. Now, I think a lot of what you guys said is warranted. The West End did look great. There was signage all over Edmonton, and especially in the areas where the Combine was. The facility, I think, looked much better than going to the Dome in Toronto. So for people that don't know, usually it's held at the University of Toronto Football Stadium, and they put one of those temporary domes up over it. So it kind of looks dark and dingy. It doesn't have the natural light, but this facility at Commonwealth Stadium, the field house, looks great because there's natural light there. As for the live stream, you can understand maybe some of the reasons for not doing it from the CFL's perspective. It should be said that Tourism Edmonton did make it beneficial for the CFL to come to Edmonton for the combine. It was very clear that Edmonton wanted This event here, which I think is actually a bonus for the league and something that they can look at as beneficial in the future. But there could have been a way to live stream it. Right. There have been people online have made points to say that you can do things as simple as somebody just tapping live stream on their phone in this day and age and do it that way. Is it as professional looking? No, but I still think you could have had a decent quality live stream out there. For those ten to 20,000 views on YouTube, not just even YouTube, but all over social media. And I think that's what you were looking at, Hodge, when you were quoting those numbers. If you gathered up all of the social impressions from a potential live stream or looked at the ones from last year in Toronto, there would be a lot of clips there. Now, there were some video content or was some video content put out by the league. But it wouldn't have equated to the amount of views if they had of live it and could have gone back through and picked out some of the interceptions or big catches or great one on ones that took place on either side of the ball in Edmonton. So I definitely think the league is going to rethink this in the future. And ultimately, as you guys pointed out, they did choose the venue. So they knew getting into this that there might not be that space there and it could have been tight. Overall, But you need to have that content out there in this day and age because from a visual standpoint, it is the league's biggest offseason event and a way for fans to get attached to this incoming crop of Canadians who are coming into the CFL. I will say, though, that overall, to echo Hodges' sentiments, the combine was run really well, very professional. And part of the reason why the CFL chose not to live stream it was because this new, longer format, there wouldn't have just been two days of live streaming like they've done in the past, there would have been three and potentially even four. So it would have been much more intrusive in terms to do. And when they've done it in Toronto, which is their usual place, there is broadcast facilities already set up there when they, have live streamed the events at the gym there at the University of Toronto. And it's much easier for them to set up the facility in Toronto as well, because that's where the league office is. So I think some of those reasons, although they do seem kind of lame are somewhat valid, but you need to invest in your product. You need to invest in these athletes because ultimately that is what this league is known for the product of the the football, the athletes and these Canadians coming into the the league, I think as a, Vitally important component. So I think that will be taken into consideration for future combines. And there was talk around the combine of where the next one could be, and it seems like there are multiple cities that want to host it that have full indoor fields where you could set up a very great broadcast. So there should be no excuses anymore from the CFL in the future not to live stream the thing. And guys, hey, if the CFL is not going to live stream it, maybe Three Down Nation can do it in the future.
0: To me, and, and you're right to point out how great the communication staff was because they were great. But at the end of the day, the communication staff is just communicating decisions that were made by the people above them who sometimes, I think, hide behind those communications people a little bit, especially after they've okay. made an unpopular decision. I think just a moment ago, who, who was it again? We were talking about the president of SFU hiding behind a press release Joy Johnson. And, and and not, thank you, not wanting to do a full interview. Yeah. Right. The decision makers are the ones who need to be held accountable. And I would also say this. If the CFL said, OK, we made the decision not to live stream the combine. But as part of our digital content strategy, here's the super cool new off-season thing that we've created that people can enjoy. I would have said, OK, fair enough. You tried live streaming the combine, didn't get the numbers you wanted. Good on you for investing in this new thing boys, can we think of anything new that the CFL has tried or anything that the CFL has innovated in from a digital content standpoint this off season? I I can't and I cover the league for a living. So, I feel like it's not happened and that to me is the inexcusable part. You had one thing that you were doing. You claimed that this new this digital content strategy is the future and you eliminated the thing that you were doing without even replacing it with something new. So that that to me is the decision that boggles the mind and uh, and it's unfortunate that that the league did not give at least in my view any reasonable reason behind why the live stream didn't happen or at the very least why it wasn't replaced by something neat in the off season, right? 2017, we had CFL week and a full live stream of the combine. And now the CFL has pivoted to this this supposed digital strategy content content strategy They have nothing. We're six years later and we've we've gotten worse. We've taken we take steps back. That is unacceptable in my viewpoint.
2: Can we talk about the prospects now? Because there were some uh, damn good football players on the field that nobody got to see because it wasn't live streamed. And we did get to see it. So let's let's have a quick rapid fire discussion. What were your impressions uh, on the field of the combine? Who stood out to you, Dunk?
1: Oh, boy. Well, I'm going to go to Jackson Ford, because so I think he ran faster than I actually thought that he would, and it's going to boost his draft stock overall. And For the uninitiated, he was a quarterback of the University of John Rams defense, playing safety, but this guy can play all, all over the field. And you know that if you pick this guy, he's going to be a core special teamer right away. So I thought he boosted his draft stock well by testing better than I had originally thought. And that's no slight of his athleticism, but – he just doesn't necessarily have to run 40 yards all the time. He definitely has the quickness, the physicality, the knowledge of football to play at the pro level. And now he's shown that he's got the speed, which I think is critical in the secondary. And he happens to be the grandson of former Rough Riders general manager Al Ford. So he's got some great bloodlines there and a nice storyline as well. He really jumped out to me. And the one guy I will say that I was looking, for a little bit more from was Clark Barnes. Because he was injured throughout his season last year at the University of Guelph, I saw thought he was solid overall, but not spectacular. And I think CFL teams are really intrigued by the possibility of him as a pro, but he hasn't been healthy for any season, an entire season that he's played in U sports. So he's going to have to answer that question mark in the pros and the pro schedule is 18 games long just the regular season so double and then some the U Sports season and the fact that he didn't flash at the combine I don't think will necessarily lower his draft stock but I think some scouts thought he would run faster than he did although I still think he's a very solid prospect and could be a great value add a la Keon Schaefer Baker who went lower in the draft and I thought he should have majorly due to a lack of production that was not his fault because he didn't have great quarterback play when he was at the University of Guelph.
0: I'm going to highlight two guys. One of them is University, university of Saskatchewan offensive lineman Dayton Black. Dayton Black was a high school quarterback at Neyland in Brandon, Manitoba, where I lived for six years. So, literally
2: sagging quarterback. By the way, yes, an S- excellent S- S- quarterback, The big high school football, single season <laughs> passing record like a yes, pocket he did. passer.
0: Excellent, excellent quarterback. I wouldn't want to have to sack a quarterback his size, by the way. Uh, he goes to the University of Saskatchewan as a lineman, gets converted to the O-line and was named a Canada West All-Star this past season, taking over the left tackle spot from Noah Zerr, who is now with the BC Lions as a second round pick in last year's draft. Dayton Black did not test as well as maybe people were hoping, but he did a fantastic job in the one-on-ones. To me, he separated himself from that offensive line group, which is not the best, right? We know that as a whole, the O-line group is not considered a strength of this draft, but he, I think, did a great favor to himself in popping out off the page as one of those U-sports O-linemen. The other player who I'm going to highlight is Lucas Cormier, Lucas Cormier was not somebody who I had on my radar going into the combine. He did not participate in the East West Bowl. Well, he shows up and at 6'1", runs a 4.62, leaps 35 inches in the vertical, and broads 9.4. Like, he's out of Sackville, New Brunswick, not necessarily a play- place for Mount Allison, right in the AUS, not necessarily a school or a city that has produced an overwhelming number of talents in the CFL. With that said, Lucas Cormier is firmly on my radar now. I think he could honestly go as high as the second round come May 2nd.
2: And, and it should be noted when we talk about Lucas Cormier, he did it all in not his equipment. His, his right. gear did not arrive on his flight all the way from Sackville. So he had to grab some random cleats and borrow football equipment from the Edmonton Elks next door just so he could participate. And he still looked like the best safety on the field every single day of the week of practice. Truly an impressive performance from him after facing a little bit Of adversity. I'll highlight a couple of defensive linemen. I thought Francis Bemi from uh, Southern Utah. Um, He came into the event, probably a, a first round pick everyone thought. And I think he exits as a potential first overall pick. I was truly impressed with what I saw from him. He was battling a little bit of injury, didn't participate in everything, but when he went out there, he made the most of his reps. You, know, you saw the extension. You saw the length. You saw him flash power off the edge. Really, really good week from him. And I think he elevated his stock into an entirely new tier, not to the same extent as maybe someone like Terrell Richards did a year ago, but sort of in that vein where he was already a first rounder, but now you're talking about someone who could go in the first couple picks of the draft. And then, my guy from UBC, Lake Corte Moore, once again goes to an event like this and shines. He was great inside. He was great in, outside. You know, he got punched in the mouth, I thought, on his first rep on the first day of uh, of one-on-one's. And then from there on out, it was just win after win after win. Really impressive week from him. I will say though, overall, I was a little bit surprised by the defensive line group. We heard time and time again, that this was the best position group in this year's draft. And I was, I came away a little bit disappointed with a number of prospects. I was expecting a little bit more from that's not to say they're not talented players, but you know, Joe Bowen from Alberga was supposed to leg it up. I didn't think he did, you know, Quentin Seguin, he comes in, he's got an NCAA pedigree. I didn't think he looked particularly impressive. Now, a number of guys like that, like I was expecting a bit more from, just sort of left me wanting uh, when I watched them this week. And so I'm maybe not as high on the entire defensive line group as I expected to be. And on the flip side, I thought the receiver group really stood out. And, Dunk, you're you're harping on Clark Barnes because he's a Guelph guy, but he did – exactly what people expected him to do, right? He looked athletic. He won all his reps, basically. Now, he didn't necessarily show the finish that CFL teams were hoping because of some of the questions around him, but he looked the part. Jeremy Murphy came in from Concordia and looked the part. And then if you talk to people around the league, it seems like everyone's got a different favorite guy once you get past those two, right? Daniel Perry stood out from Saskatchewan. Uh, Richard Burton. I've had people say was a huge riser from Queens. Daniel Oladeo from Ottawa, put up 20 reps on the bench and then looked really good in the one-on-ones. I really like Caleb Morin, the other receiver from Saskatchewan who came from the Invitational Combine. So I thought that receiver group really distinguished itself as opposed to some of the other positions. And there is going to be teams that are very comfortable with a mid to late round pick from that group who they think can come in and contribute above maybe where they're drafted.
1: Just before we move on here, we got to mention Anthony Bennett because he was far and away the best interview that you guys did of the <laughs> prospect. University of Virginia Rams defensive lineman infuses energy. Yes, he's 26 years old, and there's some talk about his age potentially affecting his draft stock, but there is no question that whatever team he goes to, and I think he's going to be a high pick, you guys would probably agree too, he's going to bring a lot of energy and passion for football. It was awesome to see Somebody just be so comfortable in that setting where oftentimes we talk to prospects and they're really nervous about the whole thing, right? Because they feel like they're being evaluated and they are the entire weekend. But he was just so comfortable in his own skin and such a breath of fresh air.
2: Speaking of that receiver group, one guy who wasn't in attendance was an invitational combine at, attendee, Michael O'Shea, the son of Winnipeg Blue Bombers head coach. Mike O'Shea, who is eligible for selection in this year's CFL draft class. Though, the Bombers head coach told you, Dunk, that he doesn't believe he'll end up in Winnipeg. Why did O'Shea say that?
1: Well, he doesn't believe it's best for his son, Michael, the Blue Bombers, himself, or anybody involved in the organization. And there's been a lot of talk about this and you know, other avenues and business and how people, because of their family connections, get in somewhere. And I think O'Shea would ideally like to avoid it. But on the flip side, GM Kyle Walters said, well, if we get into a situation where in terms of our receiver grades, it's a coin flip between Michael O'Shea or a different receiver, then perhaps that does factor in. And we go with Michael O'Shea because you know the kind of heart and tenacity and work ethic that he's going to bring to the table. Michael O'Shea could have had his football career end unceremoniously at the University of Guelph, which also happens to be the alma mater of his father, Mike O'Shea, and admittedly my alma mater. But for true transparency, I've always been harder, as you just heard, on anybody coming out of the University of Guelph, including Clark Barnes and anybody else through the years and anybody that comes after. So O'Shea didn't dress and start at the University of Guelph, could have just thrown in the pad, so to speak, on his football career, but decided to keep at it, went the junior football route in the Canadian Junior Football League with the Okanagan Sun, had a great 2021 season, and was productive when he was on the field in 2022, and had the go-ahead touchdown in the Canadian Bowl for the Sun to go on and ultimately win it. So he's shown he can come up in clutch situations, and we've seen players come out of Canadian junior football and have an impact in the CFL. And one of them did so for those Winnipeg Blue Bombers, who's a homegrown product in Andrew Harris. So I'm not saying Michael O'Shea is going to turn into Andrew Harris, but it's another path that you can take to get to the CFL. But in terms of O'Shea not wanting to have his son at least start his pro career with his team, I had to question him a little bit because you could see – O'Shea wanting to be very careful with his words and also the difference in his perspective on his son as a father and then him grappling with that as a coach and ultimately an evaluator of what would be best for his football team. So if you want to check out that interview, it's on the 3DowNation YouTube page. We've also written the article about it on 3 And it's very clear that O'Shea is proud of his son but he doesn't want any nepotism to get involved here with his son's potential pro career.
0: Yeah. And I think that this is actually a really smart way to handle it for O'Shea. We've seen in the past coaches, right. Hold positions for their sons at mostly the amateur, but sometimes even the pro level. It's 20 years ago that a wealthy entrepreneur bought the Calgary Stampeders primarily to give his (laughs) son a starting quarterback job. (laughs) which is amazing Um, and also really sad at the same time. So to me, this is a smart move, I think. And obviously it's clear that, that Mike O'Shea and Michael O'Shea have had this conversation with one another. To me, Michael O'Shea does not look like a draftable player. And I'm not saying that as a shot. Very few players get drafted out of the CJFL. And he only ran a 4.86 at the Invitational Combine. With that said, He is a player, in my view, where the testing doesn't tell the full story. He was a two-time CJFL, first-team All-Canadian, and he was the BCFC, that's the British uh, Columbia Football Conference, Outstanding Special Teams Player of the Year. He is an absolute stud as a returner, but he's also got some nice hands. Caught the game-winning touchdown pass in the Canadian Bowl this past year as the Sun defeated the Regina Thunder. By the way, true story, Mike O'Shea was unable to attend that game because he was dealing with the Bombers. So Mike O'Shea's wife was there with one of their other children. Jeremy O'Day spotted them at the game. Jeremy O'Day's son was playing for the Regina Thunder and invited them up to his box. So you had two of the most well-known CFL families watching their, their, you know, their, their sons basically competing for a CJFL championship on a very cold, wintry, blustery day at Mosaic stadium. So pretty wild circumstance but to me wherever he ends up and Michael O'Shea certainly deserves a shot at the CFL level hopefully we get the opportunity to either see him play for dad or at the very least against dad because that would be a very nice story
2: I simply want it for the storylines and and you're right Hodge it's going to be an uphill battle for for Michael O'Shea to get drafted just based on the numbers and, and the level of competition he's playing against but Let's let's not dismiss the fact he is an excellent player at the CJFL level, um, really distinguished himself, was not just a two-time All-Canadian, but was a dual first-team All-Canadian this past year as a returner and a receiver, made that team twice in 2022. And I thought his best attribute was actually some of his tenacity and intelligence as a blocker. Uh, I was really impressed when I, I did a little bit of a deep dive on him in that aspect. He's not as physically strong as, as some of the other prospects. He's not as fast, but he certainly understands the game. And I think we all know where that comes from.
0: Former CFL star receiver, Brandon Zilstra remains a free agent following a five-year NFL stint with Minnesota, Carolina, and Detroit. Do you see the 30 year old returning to the CFL anytime soon? And if so, with which team?
2: Well, I, I don't necessarily think we'll see him anytime soon. Zilstra has made some money at the NFL level. He's approaching that time in, in a player's life when they have to make some decisions. Now, he's not over the hill by any stretch, but with some money in the bank, he may opt to simply step away from football if there's not another NFL opportunity available. It should be noted, Three Down Nation has tried to reach out to Zilstra and his representatives Uh, Recently, we have not heard back um, in regards to his plans going forward for the future. If he were to return to the CFL, to me, there are two natural landing spots. One would be Saskatchewan, because as we've discussed in the past, there is some money there potentially that could be spent on a player like Brandon Zilstra, but the other team, and I think this is the likeliest landing spot that also has some cap space is the Montreal Alouettes. And we all know the fit there with new head coach, Jason Moss, who was Zilstra's head coach when he played for Edmonton and was able to help him produce such dominant seasons with the Elks. Um, now, Justin, you, you asked, Moss about the possibility of this at the CFL combine. He said he had not been in contact with Zilstra about the possibility of him returning to the CFL, but he did leave the door open and I'd certainly like to see it. It would be a coup d'etat for the Montreal Alouettes with everything they went through before uh, free agency to be able to grab a guy who could instantly come in and potentially be the best, uh, receiver in the cfl
1: great friends pronunciation i did ask moss and danny machocha about this and just to fill in some of the holes there jc brandon zilstra has made 3.8 million usd in the nfl so he could just go do whatever he wants with the rest of his life and doesn't necessarily need to play in the cfl although i think 200 thousand plus dollars a year could be enticing to continue playing football and had that bank account. Jason Moss clearly has a connection with him. He's in touch with Zilster. It sounds like somewhat regularly and openly was cheerleading for him to continue playing in the NFL because he knows the financial differences of playing South of the border versus North of the border. But you could also tell that he would definitely welcome him with open arms in Montreal and they would instantly become the Alouette's number one receiver, especially after losing Gino Lewis signed that deal with the Edmonton Elks worth $320,000 for the 2023 season. I asked Machocha directly if the Alouettes would have the cap space to sign Zylstra and in a roundabout way, he answered that with a yes. So it's certainly a possibility in Montreal. There would be lots of other suitors out there, but perhaps the reason that Moss did not divulge whether or not he's talked to Zylstra about this possibility is he doesn't want a bunch of other teams jumping in on it and potentially driving up the price. And Machocha, for his part, said that this is something that would likely happen closer to training camp if it was going to happen at all. But from what I'm told from people around Zilstra's camp, that he's NFL-focused right now. He wants to get back on a team. And I think the realistic timeline for that would be after the NFL draft. If he's not signed, Soon after the NFL draft takes place, then I think he's going to have to make a real decision. Now he could continue to wait it out through the offseason. The dead part of the NFL offseason is really that month of June before teams get prepared and ready to go into training camp in late July and early August. So I really think that's kind of the timeline for Zilstra. But if he wants to go back to Canon and make an impact, he knows he's going to have to at least be in a little bit of training camp to get ready for the start of the season and be paid that kind of money, elite receiver money that he would want. I mean, you could argue that if Brandon Zilster came back to the CFL, he should be the highest paid receiver in the league, but he just hasn't played here for a while. So I think he could command easily 200 plus thousand dollars. And that would depend on the suitors, I think he can rule out a number of teams. Like he's not going to go to the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. We know they're right close to the cap. They paid up to get Kenny Lawler. The Tiger Cats went on a big spending spree in free agency, even though there were some bodies that went out of there. So he's probably not going to Hamilton. And as you kind of go down that list, you can see the teams where it would make sense and where it wouldn't make sense. I think the Calgary Stampeders would be another one that you could cross off the list. They just haven't shown that they're going to go out and spend that kind of money on a free agent to add to their team. So that's already a third of the league gone, although I do think he would have some bitters if he came back north of the border. But the best fit would make sense being with Moss. He had, I believe it was 100 catches for over 1,600 yards in that outstanding year that he had in the CFL before he went down to the NFL and has spent time so far with Minnesota, Carolina, and Detroit.
0: As a brief aside before we move on, I do think that the Edmonton receiving core that they had about five, six years ago that featured Zilstra, that featured Darrell Walker, that featured Duke Williams illustrates how players move about the league, right? Paul Jones and Ed Hervey were in that front office back then at Edmonton. Well, where does Duke Williams go? He goes to Saskatchewan, follows Jason Moss there after his NFL stint. Where does he go after that? Hamilton. He follows Ed Hervey, who is now in their front office, Paul Jones is now the assistant GM in Saskatchewan. Where does Darrell Walker go when he needs a new place to play? He goes to Edmonton. So often these guys do follow either personnel, people, or coaches who they are comfortable with when it comes time to get to free agency. So I think the teams you guys mentioned for Brandon Zilstra are bang on. We're a day early with this Hodges Heritage moment, but I think it's an important one, boys. On this day in 2018, it's been five years already, 16 people lost their lives in the Humboldt Broncos bus crash. One of the deceased was Tyler Bieber, who served as a a team's radio announcer. Bieber spent years covering the CFL and was best known for running the at CFL daily Twitter account, which had almost 10,000 followers. He was also a youth coach serving as a wide receivers coach for the Humboldt Mohawks high school football team. Bieber was also a passionate young man who loved football and dedicated his time to serving his community as a volunteer. He was just 29 years old. Boys, obviously a tragic event, one that I think touched the hearts and minds of Canadians from coast to coast. And uh, I never had the good fortune of meeting Tyler Bieber, but I think about him every every year around this time of year, and uh, I wish he was still with us.
1: Amen, Hodge. R.I.P. to Mr. Beaver and prayers out to his family. The three-minute drill, Hodge, you did an exclusive interview with Canadian offensive lineman Carter O'Donnell in which he said he's ready to go for his fourth NFL season with the Indianapolis Colts. What was the injury that kept him out last year?
0: He had a list Frank injury. What are the odds that two of the best Canadian football players on the planet suffered list Frank injuries in the same year? Of course, him and Nathan Rourke. He's ready to go. OTAs are starting soon for the Colts I'd encourage you read the full article though should be a good season for Carter O'Donnell and it might be his last chance right to crack an NFL roster though if he doesn't the CFL will benefit by having him presumably in Edmonton several 2023 CFL draft prospects performed at their NFL pro days south of the border this past week which one most impressed you
2: well I think one guy for certain has elevated himself into at least NFL UDFA status. And that's Jared Wayne, the receiver out of Pittsburgh. There's been lots of discussion about whether he would be NFL bound or CFL bound next year. Hodge, you mocked him at number one overall in your first CFL mock draft. I don't think that's happening anymore. He vertical jumped uh, 41 and a half inches. That would have been tops among all receivers At the NFL Combine, he's not the fastest dude. I think he ran a four six five forty, but he's fast enough. Extremely good route runner. He's physical, and he shows that elite explosiveness. I think he's certainly an NFL player next year at the very least. Laval QB Arnaud Desjardins participated in the CFL Combine as an underclassman. And will attend training camp with the Winnipeg Blue Bombers as part of the league's internship program. Is that a smart move?
1: It really is. Desjardins can learn from Buck Pierce, who of course was a successful quarterback in the CFL and has become an offensive guru, dare I say. And also Zach Caleros, who is the two-time defending CFL Most Outstanding Player and has won A couple great cups in the last three years and has took his team to three straight. So a great opportunity for Desjardins to learn and continue developing. I think Desjardins is one of the next great Canadian quarterbacks that everybody needs to pay attention to. The Bombers have added Appalachian Appalachian State kicker Chandler Stanton and Canadian punter Chris McLean out of the University of Calgary. Do you think either of them can steal Mark Leggio's job?
0: i mean the bombers needed to bring in competition in camp i'm still skeptical that either is better than legio but we'll see chris jones told you jc that the elks expect canadian linebacker kevin francis to be with the team in 2023 despite his release his request for a release or trade does that seem reasonable
2: well things have gone awfully quiet from francis since he made his public declarations. so Hopefully that means things are trending in the right direction. But I will say this. If indeed they have not paid him the money he has owed from his signing bonus yet, that is not acceptable at the professional level. And and certainly if there are, are reasons in, in the front office, new protocols that they have put in place, those need to be better communicated with players going forward. Therefore, this does not happen again the Montreal Alouettes hired Mark Waitman as their new president and CEO, who will take over from Mario Chichini after he departs to become the commissioner of the QMJHL. Is that a legit hire?
1: It is solid. He's been there before and he has probably a longer resume than any LaRouche, but I really wish they went with LaRouche. I think that could have been an innovative hire. Craig Dickinson believes Darrell Walker has... Still, quote, a lot of good football in him, close quote. Do you agree with the Riders bench boss?
0: I mean, Darrell Walker didn't always look interested, I thought, last year. But then again, he didn't always have the best quarterback play. So pairing him with Trevor Harris, who he was able to uh, very briefly overlap with in 2021, I think could create somewhat of a Darrell Walker renaissance, so to speak. The BC Lions don't expect Steven Richardson to play this year following a setback in his recuperation from an Achilles tear. Is that a big loss for the Lions?
2: It's hard to characterize it as a loss because he didn't play at all last season, his first season after signing with the club as a free agent. But certainly it's disappointing that you'll never get to see a player of his caliber step onto the field as a defensive tackle for the BC Lions. He would have made their team better, and now they're going to have to Continue to roll with the other options they have available. Canadian billionaire Steve Apostolopoulos has reportedly submitted a $6 billion bid for the Washington Commanders. That is billion with a B, gentlemen. Could he be the team's new owner?
1: It's possible, but he's got some stiff competition here. One in the name of Jeff Bezos, who happens to own a company called Amazon, I think that we all know about. So I don't go, it'll be tricky, but. It's very intriguing to see a Canadian in the mix here. I think some people would like to see him fund a CFL team on the East Coast. So perhaps if he doesn't get the commanders, the CFL community can at least try to talk him into it. The Edmonton Elks officially released veteran running back James Wilder Jr. Is that a surprise?
0: It's not a surprise given the way in which he struggled with his, I believe it was a neck injury injury. This past year. However, I think we will all miss seeing James Wilder Jr. North of the border. I know he has to undergo surgery. If he wants to see the field again in his pro career, hopefully he's able to do that. If that is in fact what he wants for his future, future pro football hall of fame, tight end Rob Gronkowski joked about signing with the BC lions. Do you think he'd do well in orange and black?
2: Well, He's Gronk. He's going to dominate as a receiver. But I'm more intrigued about this possibility, gentlemen. The last time the BC Lions used an American tight end, that player was A.C. Leonard, who became a dominant defensive end in the CFL. Let's switch Gronk to defense and see what chaos he can create flying off the edge. That's what I want to see. Queen's University has been selected to host the 2023 and 2024 Vanier Cup games. Do you think they'll do a great job hosting the event?
1: I really do. And the major reason why is because that stadium is absolutely stunning. It is a great venue for Canadian football. There's no track around it. So the fans are right on top of the field. And I think that's part of the reason why U Sports put the event there so I think they will do a wonderful job and that stadium will get to be shown hopefully on national TV I think that deal will still probably be going with the CBC but it is an awesome venue Wally Buono is being added to the BC Lions wall of honor is he a worthy addition
0: I mean the only thing I was shocked by is was was he not already in it like why why wasn't he in it already? This. <laughs> this doesn't make any sense. This this was like five or six years ago when the bombers inducted Bob Irving to their Hall of Fame and it was like he wasn't in? Okay, weird. But yes, obviously he's worthy. The Calgary Stampeders have signed Mike Moore, who was released by Montreal earlier this offseason. Is that a noteworthy signing?
2: I think it is, right? Mike Moore is a guy who can play inside very effectively as defensive as a defensive tackle, but at his size can still move outside. And rush off the edge, he gives you versatility across the board. I really like this move for the Calgary Stampeders. Starts to plug some of the holes that they lost with guys leaving in free agency. CFL Commissioner Randy Ambrosi dismissed a rumor that Tom Brady was interested in purchasing the Montreal Alouettes. Do you believe that there was any validity to this speculation?
1: The key here is that Ambrosi dismissed it. He didn't necessarily deny it. Now, I'm not going to speak to the validity of the rumor, I think, is how it should be dubbed in this instance, because I do truly believe that if Tom Brady was interested in owning a CFL team, that there would be one of the top insiders. Not to say that 3 Nation shouldn't be considered among them, especially in Canada in terms of inside info, but that Adam Schefter or Tom Palacero or Ian Rapoport or Jay Glazer would have had some idea that Brady was interested in this. And this would have been plastered all over American media because it would have meant clicks and views and headlines and all that sort of thing. So that makes me think that it is skewing towards not being true. But Ambrosie didn't necessarily deny it. Now, maybe he was put on the spot and didn't choose his words as carefully as he would have if he was prepared for this question. But until I hear it from a guy like Adam Schefter, who has been very tied in with Tom Brady and his camp throughout his career, then I'm inclined not to believe it. Longtime CFL coach Tom Higgins is the new defensive coordinator of the CJFL's Calgary Colts. Do you think he'll help that unit take the next step?
0: Yes, I do. I think Tom Higgins is kind of an underrated guy when it comes to what he was able to do in the CFL, and I'm glad that he's helping amateur football players develop their skills. Last one, on a somber note, Saskatchewan MLA and former Regina sportscaster Derek Myers passed away this past week at the age of 45. Following a battle with cancer, we would like to offer our sincerest condolences to his family members and friends during this tough time. With that said, we'd like to thank you as always for listening to the Three Donation Podcast. We'll join you again next Wednesday for another episode